0: Secrets to Real Estate Investing, Episode 72.
1: Welcome to the Secrets of Real Estate Investing Show, where you'll learn powerful strategies from top experts to take your investments to the next level. Here's your host and expert real estate investor, Holly McCann. Well,
0: hey, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of Secrets to Real Estate Investing. And I'm so excited for this guy I've got today. He is such a successful real estate investor, and he was very successful in his life before too, but I'm really excited to have him and have him share the stories of his success because I'm going to say he's had supersonic success. Anyway, (laughs) with that, welcome to the show, Mike Cowper.
1: Thank you, Holly, for having me on your show. I'm really excited to be able to talk to you and your listeners.
0: Well, I'm really appreciative of the time that you are donating to us, generously giving to enlighten people and inspire them. Why don't you start out by giving us your story about you know, your life before real
1: estate and how you got into real estate? Yeah. So I graduated college, started off in actually 2008 when it was tough to find jobs. I found myself in sales, selling copy machines, uh, ended up moving towards Thomson Reuters, where I started selling tax and account information. And then my last official corporate job was with a pharmaceutical company where I was, you know, selling medications or promoting them to doctors, one president's club. And then, uh, A week later, I quit so I could do this full time.
0: (laughs) Wow. Okay, so you got to tell us, why did you quit? If you're that successful in it, why would you leave such a great job, huh?
1: Well, and it truly was a great job. The reason I quit is because... I am not built to be an employee. I, I never could do that long-term. I just don't have that in me for some reason. I, I don't know how to pinpoint exactly what that feeling is, but it's a feeling that's always in me. I, I, I drive and I push myself to always try and be as successful as I possibly can. And when there's somebody on top that always can cap that, it's impossible to rise to the level that I wanted to be at. Uh, so that that's kind of what made me decide to do that. And, and it really helped having real estate in my background. I'd started doing some of my real estate, uh, you know, when I was at Thomson Reuters, but you know, having some of the, the rentals that I started acquiring and then partnering up with my partner, Mike Simmons, it really allowed me to have that freedom to make that decision.
0: <laughs> well, and my perception is that all of that corporate experience and training and success, is hugely responsible for your quick success you've had in real estate. Would you agree
1: with that? I really do think so. I think you're 100% accurate. If I hadn't gone through some of the trials and tribulations that I did doing the corporate world, you know, selling different products and things like that, overcoming objections, hearing no a bazillion times, I don't know that I would have the wherewithal or the skills to – look at a customer the same way I do now, you know, a seller that reaches out to us, we're always trying to solve their problems. Whereas had I just gone in, you know, kid fresh out of college, not knowing anything, you know, uh, ABCs, like they say, and then, uh, was that Glenclaring Ross? I don't think selling's done that way anymore. And had I not gone through that myself, I don't know that I'd be able to be as helpful to people as I am now.
0: Right. Yeah. You had years of selling success as a salesperson before you started, selling sellers on why they should sell you their house, right? Because that's exactly what this business is. If you are dealing with sellers, it's a sales job, right?
1: (laughs) That's exactly what it is. When we're looking for people on our team, we're always looking for salespeople first, real estate second, because ultimately you're trying to understand what someone's pain is. Why are they trying to sell their house? And are we the right solution? Because oftentimes we're not, but we try to put together enough resources and people around us that we can always offer them some sort of solution even if we're not the the absolute best one for them.
0: I love that strategy and philosophy because you know if you you, you probably sometimes get referrals too and if you didn't treat someone right they're not going to refer you but if you treat them well you know good karma and everything what goes around comes around you know you're going to get a lot more business by providing value to that seller, even if you're not the right solution for them. Maybe later down the road you will be the right solution. Maybe they're not ready to sell now and then maybe something would come later and they're gonna call you back because you were so kind and helpful, right?
1: Well, you've nailed it on the head. We have had some of our most profitable deals be that way. They they were going to go a different route. Time took place. They didn't end up pulling the trigger for one reason or another, or they couldn't sell it the way they thought they might be able to because, I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of people in the industry that don't necessarily know as much as maybe they should or could or don't aren't as honest about it. So we always try to be consulted in the first phase of it. And then people come back to us and say, hey, I just need to get rid of this now. And we're okay, you understand what we do and how we do it, so this is where we need to be at. And, and if they get to a point where that makes sense for them, they call us back rather than, you know, trying to pick out somebody new and see if they start the cycle all over again. Because we've built that trust with them that we're not just trying to steal their home.
0: <laughs> right, right. Well, it's, it's funny that we're talking about this because I just, I don't meet with a lot of sellers. I generally buy through wholesalers or realtors where they bring a deal to me already under contract. But here's one where a realtor brought it to me and I said, let me meet with the seller to present my two offers, the cash offer and the seller carry offer that was higher. And, and the seller's not ready to take either offer right now, but she said she really, really liked me and I'm hoping I'm gonna be the first person she calls if and when she's ready to get realistic price. So fingers crossed, because she's not going to get her price for the cash offer from an investor unless it's somebody that doesn't know what they're doing, which we have a lot of those running around in Southern California right now, or they overpay for the flips, but I'm hoping she's coming back to me. So anyway, well, let's go back to your first deal. Can you tell us about your first deal in real estate?
1: Yeah. So it's it, it kind of mirrors what I do as a person. I'm pretty active and action oriented. So... I had been talking about wanting to get into real estate for a long time. And and my buddy and my best man and I were actually going to sit around my backyard, having a few beers and and I'd mentioned it again. And finally just looked at me and goes, dude, you've been talking about this forever. When are you going to actually just do it? So the next day, I started looking up for you know real estate groups, RIAs and whatnot. I went to one, um, I liked them, they had a mentorship program, I paid them money to teach me how to do stuff faster. So that was September of 2014, I owned my first rental by November 5th of the same year. So I, I went through their program. I learned the, the ins and outs as much as they could teach it with what their knowledge was, which was plenty for what I needed to start off with. Uh, we started off by making offers on the MLS and I ended up buying a property with more of a traditional financing route. Then, no, actually I, I got a private money loan from actually my dad, which was super cool of him.
0: Thanks, dad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But
1: I was able to refi it very quickly after putting a tenant in there and then using conventional financing to pull that equity out, pay him back, and then have a little bit left over to start working on the next one. It was a pretty cookie cutter house. I mean going back, there's a lot more I would have done to it. I would have charged more rent. I would have done a little better, nicer finish. But at the time it put a tenant in there and I made money every month. So I can't complain about that.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm impressed that you said you would have done a nicer finish because I'm guilty as many people are in this business of doing the finishes too nice. (laughs) You know, I make it like nice enough where I would want to live it. And my rentals, let me just say my rentals are not in my own neighborhood. They're in a, a different class or area. So good for you for not over improving it
1: though. (laughs) Well, now my strategy is a little bit different. It's more along your lines. Like I don't make it a full on flip level, but I get it pretty close. I like to put granite in there. I like to try and, you know, refinish the hardwood floors that they have them paint new electrical mechanics if I can and and whatever it needs because it's a long-term investment. So if it needs it, I want to replace it now because that means I don't have to worry about capex or maintenance as much in the first, you know, 10 to 15 years. And if I price it, in the similar ballpark of something else, they go to look at another property if they're gonna think about switching their occupancy, they go, ooh, I got a really good deal. All these other houses are you know, bare minimum finish and, and my house is really nice, but why would I switch now for the same price or maybe a hair less? So I feel like it's gonna give me longer term occupancy and don't have the vac- vacancy you know, expenses because turnover is the biggest killer in, in landlords.
0: Oh, yeah, turnover is killer. Between, you know, one to two months of vacancy between getting them out, cleaning it up, showing it, it's at least a month usually, if not two, and then all the expense of doing it because. I don't know, I get kind of stuck with the bill sometimes because the reason people are leaving is they can't afford the rent and they're just like, okay, I'll leave and they're like, okay, I guess I'm paying the bank ready then because their security deposit isn't covering it, but it's all fine, <laughs> it all works out. <laughs> so um, on that deal, do you mind sharing numbers with us on what the numbers look like?
1: Yeah. So I was able to purchase that property for $65,000. I put about, I believe, $10,000 into it. And like I said, it wasn't the super nice finish like I I probably should have done, but I was able to rent it. Now, I think it's slow within a month. I I usually try to have them leased up within a week lately. But uh, yeah, it was leased up in about a month. I was also going into I bought it in November. So I was going through the holiday season, which is right. notoriously difficult to sell or yeah. lease a property because people just don't want to move in the middle of the holidays. But I ultimately am getting a person for $950 a month and they signed a three-year lease and they're still paying today. I had a property management company that was managing it at first. They weren't doing as well as I had hoped. Uh, they allowed the tenant to get behind. The water bill started getting high. I switched over to a, a personal friend in the area that's my opinion, the best property management out there. But uh, I, I switched over to him, got them right as rain. They're they're paying on time. They're, they're, their bills are all caught up and I haven't heard a problem from it since. So I, I love it. And, and it's worked out really well. It's, it's one of those traditional finances. I can't remember. I, I believe I ended up doing a, a 15 year 7-1 arm, uh, seven years fixed Every one year, they can adjust it with a maximum increase from 3.5% to, I think, 6%, which is awesome. Sweet. <laughs> yes.
0: Uh, that's some good pricing and a really good return. I, a lot of people um, hear the 1% rule, where you want to get 1% of the purchase price per month in rent. So you were all into that one at 75 grand. So you'd want to get rent at least 750 a month if you're following that rule and, and you got that or higher. So you're good on that.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, the, Michigan's a bad name because of Detroit. Detroit itself, we don't invest in, but the surrounding areas are actually some of the, probably the rest, best rental areas that I know the Midwest, it's stable. Our prices don't appreciate and drop as much as other areas can, but the rents stay pretty stable. So we usually target like one and a half to 2% rule here. So, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity here for long-term investment, but you might not see that appreciation side that some people like to bank on too.
0: Right, right. In California, we get the appreciation, that's for sure, but you also <laughs> get slammed in the, the slowdowns too. So, okay, well, tell us about what your business, well, I guess we still need to hear about your partner and how that all came about.
1: Yeah, so when I first started you know, going into this, I actually bought three properties in the first six months of business, of my own, so buying rentals and things like that. I started to realize it was harder and harder to find MLS opportunities, which was the way I was taught to do it. So I started investigating, doing more learning, uh, went through bigger pockets, and then ultimately found people locally that were sending out direct mail. So I reached out to all of them, tried to schedule meetings. One of them was my partner, Mike Simmons. And I just reached out to him. He was kind of very, very generous with his time. We went up and met, talked. And I heard some of the things that he was telling me that he was doing that I could probably help him out with. So he was a flipper versus the landlord. He had, some, he had some rentals, but his primary business was flipping. He started doing direct mailing, found he had too many. So he started wholesaling them off to some of his investing buddies. And he was starting to try and scale that. But he felt he wasn't at a point where he needed that additional people yet. So I basically offered to work for him for free as acquisitions manager on a commission basis. If I hit something, you know, for you, pay me a little piece of that. Otherwise I just appear to learn. So I ended up working for him for three to five months. I can't remember the exact timeline and you know, we're pretty successful. I was able to sign up quite a few deals for him. He was happy. He was making money on it. We had a small team and he ultimately asked me what are you, your plans long-term? And, and I kind of told him like I told you in the beginning, I, I'm not going to be an employee for someone forever. And I'm not saying today or tomorrow, but at some point, I'm going to want to do this on my own. We kind of started collaborating and decided that we would form return on investments together and become 50, 50 partners and kind of segregate the work a little bit. So I now manage the acquisition side and he handles more of the disposition side. And, and that's kind of how it came to be.
0: <laughs> now you were beginning your real estate investing ventures before 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 you quit your job, right? You were still a full-time employee. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So my timeline was I bought three properties while I was still working. Mike and I worked together for four, five months. And then my wife had our first baby. Oh. (laughs) And then I went on paternity leave for three months and never came back. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's a great story. I love it. So, um, nice timing. So it was the baby a boy or a girl? A
1: oh boy. He just turned two in July.
0: Oh, fun. They're still so sweet at that point.
1: <laughs> I know. You started to become much more uh, determined and the twos are hitting.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's only because they want to be independent. You
1: know. <laughs> and that's exactly what it is. You might have my stubbornness.
0: Yeah. i will lead him to be very successful like you. <laughs> so tell us about what your business um, looks like today and kind of what your role is. I know you said you're in charge of acquisitions, but I'm sure listeners would love to hear about this. We don't often hear about partnerships and certainly not about them working out well. And I know yours is working out great. So tell us about that whole thing.
1: So when Mike and I started off, it was just him and I, and then we basically followed the model. I think a lot of people do, but we actually made the jumps that people get scared of. So when we first started. I handled all of the, the acquisitions, answering every single phone call that came in, going on every single appointment, negotiating every single deal. And then he would take that property once that we put it under contract and then go about selling it to the people that he knew, You know, analyzing the, the retail potential value that we could sell it for. We got to a point where we started hitting bottlenecks. So we had too many deals coming in and then we found out, okay doing the transaction coordinations or closing coordination started killing our time. We, we, it wasn't a productive use of our time. It's something that needed to be done, but it isn't something that adds value in terms of dollars to the bottom line. So we brought somebody on our team to start handling the, the, the back and forth between title company and seller and documentation that needs to be done. So that was our first hire. Then I got too busy to be able to actively manage the phone calls while I'm on an appointment and then follow up with them and continue to that. So the next person we brought on was someone to manage the phone systems. So people that can answer the phone calls live or if not, call them back immediately as fast as they possibly could. And then work with understanding the seller's motivation, but basically gathering information and scheduling as many appointments as they could put in my calendar. (laughs) And then started doing that even more and more. Then we started bringing on people to handle the... Acquisitions aside, so I didn't have to go on every single appointment possible, and we could start outsourcing that and start thinking about bigger picture ideas. Then we also brought on a dispositions manager who could start selling the properties and working on the, you know, managing the contractors' renovation. So, really, our business philosophy, and we learned a lot of this from being a part of, of Justin's group, the, the seven figure flipping group, but um, basically, find out where the bottleneck was and where we're holding our company back and where we can delegate or hire and not to be directed, but more like a, a a lower paying position than what we are because we are the people that are driving the business and have to look outside of you know the e-myth and all of that we've got to step outside of our business to see how and what direction we need to go and where can we make things better more efficient more profitable and allowing other people who are better at per- certain things or can dedicate their time to certain things allow them the freedom to do that
0: <laughs> that's awesome so there's nothing left for you to do now huh No, 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 no.
1: Now we're in a whole new quandary, which is understanding how to identify the right people to bring on our team that fit within our culture. We've had a little bit of a turnover issue where we either didn't identify the right people, didn't do the right training. Ultimately, it always comes back to us because we are the owners of the business and we have to accept the responsibility that something on our end is wrong. So we've kind of spent most of this year trying to retool not necessarily the team, but our systems and our process and, and identify the right people that are gonna be able to take us to that next level. Because you know, we've been successful in the past, but we understand to be extremely successful, like the scale that we want to go. We need people that are just, if not as good as us, but hopefully better than us in every single position. So we can let them just run that that position and then. Think about scaling. How do we replicate that in more areas, more markets, or be better in our own market?
0: Love it. So, is your business now flipping or wholesaling or both? <laughs>
1: Both. So we do a ton of wholesale. So we, I think we did over a hundred transactions last year in terms of wholesaling and flipping. I'd say we do about 20, maybe 10 to 20% of our business ends up being flipping. So we're, we're going to probably do 10 to 20 flips this year, maybe a little bit more depending on what happens at the end of the year right now. But we've been finding as we grow, we have more money in the bank, we have more access to capital. So if we don't, get the price point we're looking for on a wholesale opportunity because we market everything to all of our investors every time. So they have the opportunity to look at it first. But if we don't get an offer that's higher than what we think we can make as a flip, taking risk and cost and holding all that into, into account, then we just end up flipping it ourselves. So it allows us to have more options and exit strategies to figure out which way we can monetize the best way
0: love it that's awesome okay so i am so excited i want to hear about some of your deals some of your great deals so inspire us with some some big money deals that you've had great success with
1: well i think to be truly successful you have to be on top of everything because competition is going to be out there no matter which market you're in I think the speed to lead is vitally important. That's why we try to live answer everything. We have some call services that answer our overflow. They're not the best in the world because someone that's not on your team's never gonna be able to explain your business as well as you can and answer questions, but we try to answer as many calls as we can. We try to schedule as many appointments as we can with people because our thought process is if we can capture that lead, put the schedule in their appointment, they're gonna stop calling everybody else because they've solved their problem in their heads. But, um, Some of the ways that we've been very successful, some of the best deals we have are because we got in there and we we didn't have to fight the competition. So I think our most profitable deal, I never actually met the seller ever. They were in Indonesia. It was all done email. They gave me permission to break the door handle off of their house and I walked in there. We made them an offer. We thought personally we could flip it and make 40 grand. We sent it out to our buyers list, assigned it for 60 grand.
0: I love it. So
1: yeah, we made 60 grand, 20 grand more than we thought we could make if we had done the renovations and resold it. And wow. and, that, and that's the thing is if you have a good list of buyers or you don't judge a deal too early, you never know what their exit strategy is or what their investment philosophy is. Because people have different numbers, they have different crews, they are able to rehab at a different cost or they can sell it in a, maybe a land contract way or have a, who knows, maybe they have a family member that just wants to live there. So, you know, you always have to be aware that the market will tell you one way or another if you have a good deal or not.
0: Oh yeah, that's a great story. So what's, a, what's another um, interesting one? I've never heard um, permission to break the door handle off. That's a good one though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: that was a good one. Um, trying to think of a, a unique one that that's you know maybe not as cookie cutter. Okay, so one house that we bought was in a, a nicer area of ours, but the homeowner was a hoarder. So I never saw three of the bedrooms or the upstairs, because I could not get there. I couldn't get up it. There were literally these little holes about the size of my foot. I have a size 13 shoe. I could barely stand in these holes, but she had these little holes to jump around her home. <laughs> I basically saw a quarter of the house and then I was taking pictures way above my head to try and get a good viewpoint, I think. But they were in, you know, they were in such a position that they had to sell their home to get rid of that stuff. Their family was helping them to try and do that. They had accumulated debt from just buying things that they thought they needed, but they ended up not needing. And they just had to reconcile that. So we were able to go in there and purchase the property for $120,000. We gave them three months of occupancy just because that was part of the solution that we had to sell it to them. And part of that was they, in exchange for that occupancy, they had to have the house cleared out themselves. So I think in a way we almost psychologically helped them to a degree. I don't know if we did or not. Hopefully it wasn't traumatic too much, but we got that house and it was empty. And I nice. couldn't believe it. I never thought that was going to happen, but it was empty. Needed a ton of work. We ended up putting, I think, fifty thousand dollars into it. But we ended up selling it for about I can't remember the exact like two thirty or two forty. We ended up making forty or fifty grand on it. But nice. it was a house I, I never got to see. But you know, if you trust your numbers, you know your numbers. You can you can estimate even sight unseen. We had to estimate that it was a full rehab, and it was a full rehab. And I think people get caught up sometimes and have to be down to the penny if you, if you build in a cushion, if you, if you understand what renovations might look like, or, you know, even walk through a few properties on the MLS with a contractor and get what their bidding might look like, you can do a pretty fair estimate. And if you're in the ballpark and you have enough cushion, you know, to weather a turn or two, or maybe an extra month or two of holding, it's not that bad. I think people get scared of the risk and, and the risk is where the reward is as well. But, but that's not saying don't make an, an uncalculated risk, but right. But look at it, run your numbers. If the numbers work, they work.
0: Yeah. And I'm laughing when you say down to the penny. Like I'm shocked if we're within like five thousand dollars of our budget because there's always surprises, there's always unknowns. I mean just today my contractors calling me saying, Well, we couldn't move the plumbing because, you know, about the house was built. So now we gotta build a chase and we're gonna do it in the garage. I mean at least he calls me and tells me he's got it solved. He doesn't say I have a problem, I don't know what to do. Oh, and then they concreted in all the drains up on the upper level. I'm like, oh my gosh, like who would you, he never thought that when he bid the job. But it's just, that's just the nature of the business. And if you start to have things like that, don't quit, don't run away, because
1: it's gonna be that way on most deals, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the thing is, they're not all winners. You know, if you if, if you play the game long enough, you get some losers. And I, I think that's every investor has that experience. But for the most part, you can be cautious. But I, I know, I remember Justin Williams telling me something that, you know, when he first started, he was overly cautious and he could never get a deal. And then someone sat him down and says, dude, these numbers are never gonna work for you. So he started bidding up a little bit, he's like, oh, okay, I still make as much to discover it, but I still make a lot of money. And if I can scale this the right way, 100 plus flips a year, boom, I make a bunch of money.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe even a million dollars, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, um, give us some of your, I mean, you're just a super, in my mind and in the world, super successful salesperson. I mean, you had years of sales experience and I mean, I'd love to hear some of your great advice on like overcoming seller objections. And in fact, listeners, that is what Mike is generously going to give us for our free download this week is he's going to give us um, how to handle a top five seller objections that, that he hears. I mean, he's a pro like, probably you could, we could approach you when you're asleep and talk to you and you would sleep talk like the right comebacks. Right. <laughs> so tell, tell us a little bit about that. What are like some of the big objections and the good answers back?
1: <laughs> well, some of the big objections, that, especially, you know, I, I want top dollar for my house, you know, right. I, I need the most money possible. Well, I think what people try to do is overcome the objection before they understand why they have that objection. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the first start is, Oh, okay. I completely appreciate that. You know, you, you want the most free money for your house, but what do you think it's worth in its current condition? And that's the, the trick point there. And then you say, okay, well tell me more about your condition of your property. Is it fully updated? What, what improvements would you want someone to do if you were to buy the house new? And then I, I shot at me, I'm a millennial, so I could say this, but I take a shot at millennials and say, Hey, yeah, we're, we're the laziest generation out there and we want everything done. We want the brand newest of everything. And I don't want to have to pick up a paintbrush when I buy this house. So that's the market these days. So I, I try to explain to them what that might look like, but ultimately you can't overcome an objection unless you understand what that objection and why they're, they're making it. So with the, the, I want the top dollar go, okay, top dollar is this, but do you have the capacity or the time or the money to do the work that is needed to get you to that level? Well, no, typically is the answer. If it does, that's where I always go with the consultative approach. We have an agent uh, referral on, on hand all the time that we refer a lot of leads to that just don't fit our model. So I think that's a big one. And being able to just explain to them, okay, here's what the traditional real estate model looks like. And, and this is Mike loves this one, but basically what I tell people is you can go the traditional real estate route if you really want to. And I, you'll probably make more money, but if you don't, and if you call me back, you're proving the market for us. And that means I'm gonna have to adjust my offer. So if you think it's worth this and they don't buy, and then I go look at that online when you call me back, cause I, I have an agent's license. I can look at the MLS and I see that you reduced it to this, this, and this. That means the market is not willing to pay what you were hoping for. So that means I have to adjust my price down accordingly because it still oh. needs to work. And now you've taken that risk for us with us buying the house, we're taking that risk for you. We're taking on the financial risk. We're taking on the risk of doing the renovations and we're taking on the risk of the market fluctuations. But if you test it and you come back to me, that means I'm going to have to adjust. So that's the one that I think a lot of people can learn from And it's not to say it in a mean fashion, but it is the truth. If someone lists their house and calls me back, I mean, literally today, someone just called us back and says, I'm a desperate seller now. I tried it, nobody even listed. Like, when people say the word desperate, my ears go woo! What? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. then he goes, I don't wanna say desperate to an investor, call me motivated. They're both (laughs) the same thing to me. (laughs) And it's not like I'm gonna try and take advantage of him, but he's already proved the market, it's not worth whatever he thought it was worth, because I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but now I take that into account, you tried this, so it's not worth that as it currently stands. If I want to get to even close to that level, I have to do all this work, and, and now I can present to them in even more succinct offers. Like, you've tried it this way, man. What are you going to do
0: next? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's great. Kind of a, a little bit of a takeaway there. Well, um, we, we're getting near the end of our show. So um, so listeners, to hear his next four that he's going to share, maybe he'll still give us five more of the the top five seller objections and how to handle them because he's probably done it, I don't know how many, th- tens of thousands of times, or he's sat in front of sellers, he emails them all. <laughs> no one can stump you,
1: right? Yeah. You know, I, I don't think so. I mean, the, <laughs> the objections change, but the motivating factors are usually similar. So, I mean, as long as you're open and listening, that, that's how the, people you have to listen if you're going to sell. You have to understand where they're coming from and why they're asking the question more than the question itself.
0: Right, right. Uh, Brilliantly said. (laughs) And we're always looking for problem properties and people with problems more than just a property. You know, there's got to be people with the problems, the property's got to have a problem, all that mixed together, and that creates great opportunities for us.
1: (laughs) That's absolutely right.
0: Yeah, well, Okay. So listeners, if you want to get Mike's great download, which you'd be nuts not to get it, you're going to go to hardhatholly.com forward slash 72, because we're on show 72. And you can also get it by texting hardhat, all one word, squeeze that space out, hardhat, to the number 38470. If you text me there, we'll shoot you back a link where you can download it also. And Mike, how do people get in touch with you?
1: Well, if anybody is interested in investing in uh, the Metro Detroit area, we we do have plans of expansion in the future at some point, but you can sign up at webuyroi.com. That gets you on our buyers list. If nothing else, if you're looking to think about how to structure your marketing emails, feel free to steal, pillage, and all that stuff and (laughs) and use it yourself. And then if you want to reach me directly, it's Mike.cowper C-O-W-P-E-R, at webuyroi.com, or if you want to just give me a call, two four eight eight seven one seven four five zero. I'm happy to help out as much as I can. You know, I, I got a lot of help in my, my time doing this, and and I love to try and pay it forward because you know we we one of my, my original business name was Rising Tide Investments because I think a rising tide raises all ships, and, and I'm here to try and help with that.
0: Oh, I love it. You're awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing everything you did. You've been so kind and generous. We really appreciate it and very inspirational. love hearing those success stories. And I wish you continued huge success, which I know you're going to have. So thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me on, Holly. It's been great.
0: All right, listeners, get out there, take some action, be inspired by Mike, and I can't wait to hear all your success stories.
1: Thanks for listening today. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review our show, and let us know in your review what you'd like to hear more of. For the show notes and free downloads for this episode and all others, go to hardhatholly.com.